Isaiah 14. I will. You notice how God makes I will statements in Scripture? He's a goal-oriented being. So is Lucifer. And really, we should call him Haleo. Lucifer doesn't show up in your Hebrew. Lucifer is a Latin word, and Haleo is his Hebrew word, the bright one, the brightest of all creation. I will make myself like the Most High. The Most High is an uncreated being. That is fundamentally not true. You cannot do that. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. So he's fallen. So God is, he's eternal, he's perfect, Satan has fallen, therefore must, must, what must he do? He must veil the truth. So point number five, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the little g God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Notice that's to unbelievers, blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, there's an implicit but, and this is going to go back to Dee's Christmas sermon. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, unbelievers. He blinds them. They cannot see God. It's impossible. And when you get to our depraved heart, you'll see why a little bit more. But an implicit but here, for, there's a transition, for God has said, light shall shine out of darkness. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So number three in your notes, God controls whether the light of knowledge will shine in our heart. If you remember Dee's Christmas sermon, we do not do it. God sovereignly flips a switch on or leaves it off. God has to flip that switch on. That's what this is saying. If God does not sovereignly flip the switch on of an unbeliever, they cannot accept Christ. We're too depraved. So what else would Satan do? He deceives. He does this to believers. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Did Adam and Eve know who God was? Yeah, so he couldn't blind them about that anymore, but he could deceive them. Right? See, he does. He blinds and he deceives unbelievers and believers from the simplicity. What is it all about? Who's the Alpha and the Omega? Jesus. So it's the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus. That's what it's all about. And that's what Paul is saying. It's the simplicity of Christ, but Satan so easily distracts us from that. What is our focus? Our focus needs to have our eye on the ball. You've heard that in athletics, right? It's so easy to take your eye off the ball and lose focus. Now look at this picture, and you'll see it's moving around, right? How do you... Cause it to cease moving. You focus. Pick one point. Pick a black dot. Doesn't matter. Pick one. Focus on it. And what do you see? The movement ceases. But then it starts going again. It's hard to stay focused on a point. Do we stay focused on Christ or do we get distracted? And I'll show you even as Christians. You notice that's what Satan does. He blinds the non-believer. What does he do to the believer? He distracts us from the centrality of Christ. So we have to remember that we're always pursuing the capital T truth, two main components of that. It must be internally consistent, and it must be consistent with reality. So if we look at internal consistency, it weaves around the Word of God is all internally consistent. So you don't take one thing and just teach on that. You have to see how does it weave around with other parts of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 
all scriptures inspired by God, proffered teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, prepared for every good work. The key word there is all. You can't take an isolated piece of scripture and think you make a doctrine out of it. How does it all weave together? And that's an amazing thing when you look at bloodlines. There's a ton of that stuff that weaves together. It's like a rope. Don't dismantle it. You can trace something through, like what God says in teaching for wisdom in Proverbs. If you seek wisdom as silver and search for her as hidden treasure... Then you'll discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Finding little traces and weaving these threads through Scripture and seeing how they interact. So if we do that, if we realize God is infinite, He self-exists as a triune God, and then Lucifer rejected that and fell to Satan and deceives and blinds, and if we realize God's Word is fundamentally true, but it's complex how it weaves together, but simple in Christ, if we are following that, Where will we be led? There's good and there's evil. That's a battlefield. We will be led into the battle over who is sovereign. There is a cosmic war out there. Isaiah 55, 11. God speaking, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. This battle for sovereignty. You notice how God actually lays down the gauntlet and invites somebody to challenge that. And that's exactly what Satan does. His whole existence, if he can get one phrase, one word of God, to fall flat, to not come true, to be changed, what is Satan's claim? I am the sovereign. And if he made one statement of God fall flat out of the many, if he gets one to not work, Satan legitimately wins that battle. And he is now sovereign, and God isn't. So that's how you can define what God, what we can understand of God, but now we can really hone in on Satan. That's what he does. He doesn't chase things that God doesn't say. He chases what God says and tries to make it fall flat. But of course we know this serpent will get his head crushed. And Genesis 3.15 is about the seed of the woman, and that's one of the strands that we're going to follow through in this class. Number four, a central thread weaving through Scripture is the seed of the woman. Of course, that's going to end up being Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So looking at those key principles, there's eight. We'll kind of bounce those in and out as we go through this series of stuff. Uh, But we've got central key characters. Genesis 1, that's a whole chapter up on the screen. What do you notice when you look at Genesis 1. God, how did you figure that out? So, uh, where you see God, he is the central character, right? So you can see Genesis 1, and it's Elohim. That's a plural word. Could be Eloah, would be singular. It's a plural, so it's opening up the concept of the Trinity right from the beginning. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. And what is it he creates? In Hebrew, that's a merism, the heavens and the earth. That means all that there is. But notice the focus. Heavens and earth, we're talking universal view. The high God creating the heavens and the earth. And then you go through the big picture in Genesis chapter 1. And we're not getting into the fall today. That's in some other stuff. We're just taking some highlights to understand our character. At the end of Genesis one thirty one, God, the high God, Elohim, saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. Peleel, Lucifer, was in existence at this time, but when his fallen form is Satan. No, 
because on day six, it was all very good. Behold, weigh, measure, evaluate, judge. God is looking and beholding at all that was made. And behold, what's the verdict? Toth ma'ov, good, very. In the Hebrew, that's a superlative. That's not, yeah, good. That's good, very, superlative. Could not be improved upon. And what did he see? All. That includes the entire spirit world. There is no fall by the end of day six. First Timothy, we're going to weave scripture together. Everything God created is good. See, the Bible's internally consistent as you go through. Now we're going to move to Genesis 2. And you see, really, the, the transition is in verse 4 that I left in there. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. So Genesis 1 and the first three chapters of Genesis 2 are the heavens and the earth, the big picture. What is the name of God, you see? God. Elohim. See? Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. Our English Bible translates that as God. But now we're going to transition earth and heaven. You see that subtle thing? In English, when we're half asleep reading the Bible, we don't even recognize God as saying, whoa, we're changing now. I was talking about the heavens and the earth, the universal perspective. Now we're going to hone in what's going on in the earth, specifically in the garden. That's chapter 2. And God reveals himself further. So there's a concept of progressive revelation. God adds more information as you go through Scripture. And to have it weave through, we have to use revelation to even understand Genesis. Nothing stands alone. So now we see God expands on his definition. The Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. You notice all the way through the rest of the chapter. Who's that guy? That is Yahweh Elohim. The Lord is Yahweh. He is still the high God. He is the sovereign. He is the Lord. But now as Yahweh, he enters into relationship, intimate, and he redeems. He he sees problems and solves them. It was not good for the man to be alone. You notice this is Yahweh that recognizes the problem and he solves the problem. That's what Yahweh does, is he solves problems we can't solve. Psalm 19. This is a great psalm talking about God. Notice the beginning. It's about Elohim. The heavens declare the glory of God. Different translations will say it differently. That is Elohim. That is the high God. You look at the heavens and study them. You look at the universe. You look at any ecosystem and you realize there must be a creator. We are without excuse. But if you look at the stars or you look at creation, you know there must be an origin. You know there must be a creator. How do you get to know him? That is Elohim. He is the high God. But now notice Psalm 19 moves into Yahweh Elohim. The Lord. The Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Look at how different and personal this is now. He restores the soul. He rejoices the heart. He transforms. He makes wise people who used to be simple. He enlightens the eyes. And he is what? That requires a bloodline. Yahweh is our redeemer. Intimate, personal, problem solving. How do we redeem ourselves? We can't. Elohim is not our redeemer. Yahweh is. Even though they're one and the same, they take different roles. He is intimate, problem solving. Number five, Yahweh is a covenant-making, problem-solving God of intimate relationship and transformation. You can also put he is our redeemer. You can also put Yahweh is the son of man. Satan will and his demons will acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. They never call him the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the Redeemer that requires a bloodline. Difference. 
Okay, character number two. So we know God, and of course he's a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But now there's this other dude, Hillel in his perfection, Lucifer we could call him. But then he falls and becomes what we call now Satan. Isaiah 14, his I will statements. There's five of them. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself. That's evolution right there. I won't take what God made me. I will make myself more than I was created. I will make myself like the Most High. How did he proclaim that? Anyone know? Well, he does. He can generate music within himself, the tabrets and pipes, which is a fascinating thing. How did he proclaim this in this passage? But God is speaking here, but you said in your heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. He hadn't even verbalized this yet. It didn't get broadcast. It was in him. Bang! And it is seen by the Spirit of God. You can't hide your thoughts and your heart. And you read in Ezekiel, he was perfect in all his ways until iniquity was found in him. So after day six, he was still fine. But at some point here, he now wants more. And bang, before he even says it, judgment is rendered Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So the fall of Satan is a thing that happens over thousands of years. We're not done with it yet. Same with our transformation. When we get to the sons of God, we'll understand that more going the other way. So he has fallen. He's a fallen being. He did not hold to the truth. That requires active, conscious thought. So he was created with the truth, but he didn't hold to it. He let that go because he wanted more. From that point, he wanted to be like the Most High. Is that possible? No. So what he wants is something that is not true. That means it is something that is not consistent with reality. So therefore, he must tell lies. He can't tell the truth. So we get to the temptation. And we're not going to... You can go into huge detail with with the temptation. We're not doing that. We're looking at overview here because we're getting into the bloodlines and battles. But what the temptation ultimately is, is that you notice he goes to Eve... He doesn't ever address Adam. And that's a fascinating difference why that is. But the fundamental issue of the temptation is Satan tempting Eve that you can be something that is false. God created true, strange is outside. We're going to tempt you to be strange, something outside. That would be an autonomous moral being. What does that mean? Self-existing being who has the ability to determine what is right and wrong. That is the essence of the temptation. Eve starts thinking, I think I can decide for myself. That is it. That's what the temptation is all about. To believe something that is not true. You are a created being. You cannot determine what is right and wrong. Only God can do that. Again, now we go to Genesis 3. So we're just looking at big picture. And all we're doing is look at the names of God here. So now the serpent Character number two, really, you got the Trinity, now character number two, the serpent enters in, and we know, of course, that Satan dealing with the serpent, but look at the name of God that he uses in Genesis 3, Elohim. He will not call him Lord. He is simply God. He knows that he is the Elohim high God, but he talks to Eve about God, 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 Elohim, not Yahweh, intimate, personal relationship but only out there. And Eve does not call him Yahweh. Eve calls him Elohim, distant. 
right off the bat, before anything else, Eve starts to accept Satan's definition that is limited from how God has already revealed himself in the chapter before. Elohim. Then there's a line. What happens next? Yahweh enters. So he's never asked to help. Eve, Adam, they never ask him to help. He allows this to happen with them by themselves, but now Yahweh Elohim enters. Lord God, Lord God, Lord, Lord, Lord. And what does he do? Acknowledges things and creates the solution, the redemption. Patch the hole. He fixes problems. Did Satan blind Adam and Eve? Or did he deceive them? How do you blind? They already saw, they, they knew who Yahweh was. They knew the Lord God in the garden. He can't blind someone who already knows. Therefore, he's deceiving, and that's what he does. He did it never deceives Adam, though. Deceives Eve. Question would be, if you ask why, it's a great question. You ask why, why, why. You notice how your two, three, four-year-olds are created by God to ask that question? And we say, shut up, you idiot. Because we haven't studied enough, we should say, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Let's study it together. Because why, 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 why? You end up with a self-existing creator God whose character is good. Even in mathematics. That's a fascinating concept for us to wrestle with. So here's a question. Why would a good and sovereign God create evil? Have you ever wrestled with that? The world wrestles with that. We're not spending our whole time talking about this. We're just taking a segment of it. Did God create evil? No. Genesis 1.31, all was very good. God created only good. He allowed evil. Yes, it was part of his plan, but he did not create it. It came of its own free will. So he didn't create evil. He created perfect. How about a good and sovereign God? Why would he allow evil? And the answer, go ahead. Had to be a choice. That's a good answer. Um, do you see that throw right in the proper cue? I mean, that was pretty good. Um, and it's what you'll see when you look at this, it is precisely because God is both good and sovereign that he allows evil. So we're just going to explore that briefly. Go to the New Testament, Luke 18. A ruler questioned him, Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? None is good except God alone. You ever wrestle with that one? What is Jesus saying? The kenosis. Jesus empties himself to become mortal flesh. He he removes what it means to be God. Now, he is still God. We can never fully understand that. But he removes the deity to take on humanity, yet he has both. Can God be tempted by evil? No. Can God get tired? No. Does God stumble? No. Does God bleed? No. If it bleeds, we can kill it. God don't bleed. He cannot be tempted by evil. Does Jesus get tired? Yes. Does he fall down to the cross? Yes. Does he bleed? Yes. Is he anemic? Yes. Does he die? Yes. Can he be tempted? Yes. Theoretically, it is possible for Jesus to fail. Hebrews talks about that in depth. That is how he is a legitimate high priest because he endured all of the temptation to the point of of sweating blood, but passed. And the Holy Spirit takes him out into the desert to be tempted. It's to bring the battle to Satan and demonstrate 
this guy can win. No human being can do that, but Jesus can. But as a human, I'm not saying he did sin. I'm saying it's theoretically possible that he could sin. So he's not good as the Father is because you can't even tempt the Father. You notice Satan throughout Scripture never tempts God, but he tempts Jesus. The Father cannot be tempted. Without disrobing, Jesus can't be. But when he does and takes on humanity, he can, but he sails through it. Only then can you crush. So the serpent, does not he is not evil. Satan himself is not evil or death. It is a bigger abstract concept. Those are manifestations of evil. And we'll see in a minute how death is bigger than Satan himself. But evil will always be a theoretical And we look at the sons of God and eternity, evil will not be theoretically possible in the eternal state, but on this planet it will be until this planet is destroyed. You will always have a theoretical. What could have God done? He could have done this. He could have done that. There's all sorts of theoreticals. You let it manifest, then you can squash it. When it's theoretical, you can't kill a theoretical concept. The seed of the woman, the alpha, the omega, Jesus Christ is the one who ends up doing this. And he will rule and reign. He's not doing that now. Satan is the little g-god of this world. But a thousand-year kingdom will come, and then you will go into the eternal state. That is not the eternal state. In the kingdom, you have several, tons of prophecies in the Old Testament. Here's one, Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The context here is this is the millennial kingdom they're talking about. Not all the people want Christ to rule over them. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, which is Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. They won't control us. They're not going to rule under us. Let's cast away their cords. You know, four times it says Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. It will be perfect, but it will be strict. People don't like that. It goes on. He who sits, the high God Elohim, sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. You may not want the Messiah, the sinful homage. There's people who are resurrected who will want him, but the general world will not want him, but he will rule. It doesn't matter what you say. I'm the sovereign God. This millennial kingdom will take place. 1 Corinthians 15, Then comes the end after the kingdom, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father whom when Jesus has abolished all rule and authority and power. For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That has not happened yet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. How do you know you're not in the kingdom? People die. It's that simple. There's many other ways to prove it. Number six. Jesus will reign and abolish all his enemies, the last being death. So you see this poor schlep. He's got a headache. I wonder why. What question ought we ought to ask? We ought to ask why. Dude, why do you got a headache? I don't know. What are the theoretical options why this sucker has a headache? He just dropped on his head a few times when he was a kid. Might have happened. Could have been hit by a two-by-four. He might just have migraines. Maybe he has a brain tumor, maybe meningitis, maybe an aneurysm. You notice how all of those are theoretical? So you do some further investigation. You're a physician. You say, holy smokes, his BP is 240 over 160. Why do you think he has a headache? Because of that blood pressure. Well, that'll give a headache. But do you know that's why he has a headache, or is that theoretical? 
That's theoretical. You don't know. You might assume. And so you might say, hey, dude, cut out your salt. 241 says you need more than salt cutting out. You can cut out salt and not lower your blood pressure. Some people it does, others it doesn't. That's theoretical as a thing. How about if you cut out your alcohol? It might lower your BP, but not necessarily. How about if you lose weight? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Everyone's different. That's theoretical. Let's do more investigation on this guy. So we do an angiogram, and what do you notice he's got sitting in his arterial circulation? He's got an aneurysm. Who could tell that? Okay, so he's got an aneurysm. I would bet that's the cause of his headache, and his BP is 240 over 160. That sucker's going to pop. So now what we ought to do, well, we can take blood pressure medicine, we can cut out salt, we can cut out alcohol, but what do we have to do now that we have manifest the reason for his headache? Squash it. Stick a coil in there, do surgery, put a stent. We need to do something to solve the fundamental problem. But until it has been manifest, we can't squash it. You see how that works? Same thing with evil. So now we're going to look at the depravity of man. The fall, Adam and Eve, they sent out of the garden. So in depravity now, God makes it simple. He was with them. They never invited him to take place. They never asked for help. So he's just demonstrating right off the bat, here's what happens now to fallen man. So Adam and Eve have sinned, and now they are alone. They're not intimate. So the physical death, that'll take 900 years, but the the spiritual death happened right away. God is no longer intimate with them, and he's demonstrating to them pathetic we really are. Adam and Eve cannot seek God. There's no, God has to turn on that switch. They can't do it themselves. They cannot admit they were wrong. They cannot even desire restoration. In fact, they go the opposite way and try to hide. They don't want restoration. They live in fear. They live in selfishness. And they are helpless. I mean, the clothing is pretty pathetic, but they cannot solve their fundamental problem, which is now spiritual death, separation from God. What do they possibly do? That's going to end up taking the death of Christ to solve. They can't do it. This is all made so simple by God. They are dependent. You are not a self-sufficient being. We are dependent. Only Yahweh the Redeemer can come and patch the hole, come correct the problem, come give us redemption. So here's humanistic pride. This would be NASA looking for life. Again, this would be what you call strange. What do I mean? God said, here's how life came to be. I created it, said God. No, I think you can be somewhere else, something other than what God did. We're Got to figure out how to do that. So they go looking for it, and they define life, and you can't read that, so I'll put it up here. Life by NASA is defined as a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. All we're going to focus on is this. Self-sustaining. Is that true? Is that false? Why? It's false. Why is that false? Somebody over there got it. All life is in God, and we had some principles, and so one of our principles is this, everything pertains to Jesus. Now we're going to look at a different aspect of that principle. In him, in Christ, all things hold together. He sustains, he upholds all things. And the context here is the spirit world, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Satan was not wound up, oh shoot, he went rogue, what do we do? Even in his fallen form, he is utterly dependent on the active upholding of Jesus Christ. If he releases that, he fritters away. So number seven, it is impossible for a creature to be self-sustaining. 
You can circle the word creature. That means something created. Notice the roots of the words, creature created. If you were created, you cannot be self-sustaining. Only the triune God is not created and self-sustains. All else is dependent. He's telling them that. You are dependent on me in a very graphic for, uh, fashion there in the garden. Genesis 3, 8. They, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God, Yahweh, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves. They're not seeking restoration. They're hiding. The Lord God called and said, where are you? Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. They live in fear because I was naked. Um, Okay. Hello. Uh, So they're afraid, so they're living in fear. Uh, And so he said, uh, you can just undo it probably. Uh, who told you were naked? Have you eaten from that one tree? There's only one restriction I gave you. Have you eaten from that? The man said, well, the woman. You notice they can't accept responsibility. The woman you put here, and of course he actually blames God, that you put here caused me, but they cannot accept responsibility for their sin. God says to the woman, okay, how about you? The, and she said, the serpent. So the serpent did it. They're all blaming. Nobody can take responsibility. So nobody takes responsibility because they cannot. Now they're sinful and depraved. What question did God ask the serpent? Nothing. There is no redemption for the serpent. It's never offered. Angels do not exist within the bloodline of Adam, and the death of Christ has to only pertains to those related by blood to Adam. There is never redemption for any angel. So Jesus, God, doesn't even bother asking Satan because of whatever lie he's going to... It's irrelevant anyway, because he can't be redeemed. But he's giving an opportunity for redemption, showing them, without me flipping the switch, you can't even say, oh, I'm sorry. You notice how David sinned, and when he's confronted, oh, I'm sorry. That's because this is after the fall now, and God can flip that switch for him. But we can't do that with our own sinful heart. Therefore, just as one man sinned in the world, and death through sin, so death has spread to all men, because all have sinned. Number eight, death entered the world through the sin of Adam. Not Eve, not Satan. Satan brought evil. Adam brought death. Romans 3 Quoting the Old Testament, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. No one who seeks God, not me, not you. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Quoting Old Testament, Psalm 53 and 14. This is showing us our depravity. Notice how Genesis interweaves with the New Testament. How about Genesis and our depravity? Let's go to Genesis 6, right before the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God was sorry he made man. This word in the Hebrew for intent, yes, sir, the intent of the thoughts of our heart. What does that mean? You can go back to Genesis 2. There's a cognate, a related word to that, yasar, formed. God formed man from the dust. He's forming something, and that becomes man. So that's the same. It's a cognate of that, a related word. The formation of our thoughts, the imaginations or the thoughts, the formation of that. How many of them? Every one of them are, and where do they come from? The heart are only evil. 
every one of the thoughts at the very formative level, not a high up thought, but before you even develop the thought, it hasn't even fully formed yet, is only evil. Jeremiah echoes that, 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so we've talked about this a lot, but it's fascinating to me to understand the Hebrews knew that the heart was the seat of your intellect. They wouldn't say, I love you with all my heart. They would say, I love you with all of my bowels, perhaps the kidney. We're going to deal with that one later, but it's very logical to sacrifice animals all the time and connect emotions to the kidney. That might surprise you. We'll do that later. But the heart is the seat of intellect. The bowels is the seat of emotion. Now we see when God renders judgment, every intent, every formation at the very base level of starting to form a thought is only evil continually. That is depravity. You have to kill that heart of stone and make a new heart of flesh. It won't happen until you resurrect it. Number nine. Our human heart is depraved. Without God, it can only form evil thoughts. So we want to look at Scripture, interpreting and interweaving with Scripture. James 1, do not be deceived. That means most believers will what? Be deceived about what comes next. Because what does Satan do to believers? He deceives them. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is where? Not from your heart, but from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We, I put this in a sermon a couple months ago, but it, where does it come from? Above. We ask the question, when you die tonight, where do you go? And we intuitively say, well, I'd go to heaven. Why? Because I accepted God. No, no, no. Because he flipped the light. Let me connect the dots. So I chose him with my free will. Free will is subordinate to God's sovereignty. In the exercise of his will, the Hebrew there, the exercise of his will is put that way to emphasize it wasn't you, but it's the sovereign will of God that allows you to even see the light. John 6.65, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So now we go to our last segment, judgment. Did the serpent win? I mean, after all, he got Adam and Eve to reject God. He deceived Eve. Adam willfully rejects God and chooses the serpent. He should win. But what triumphs over the judgment? Oh, Yahweh is a God of mercy. Death, the spiritual death happened immediately, but the physical death is going to take 900 years. And we're going to see how they come back to God. But number one, God is sovereign. He has a plan. What was his plan? To develop a bride for his son. If Satan wins at the beginning, how do you develop a perfect bride? God had this all planned out. Nothing took him by surprise. Satan didn't win. Genesis 3, 14, 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, just focus here. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. God, I will. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He'll bruise you on the head, you'll bruise him on the heel. We'll develop that more on, but here's what we're going to look at. God, the sovereign one, says, I will. That means it will happen. What is it he's going to do? I will put enmity. And you notice this isn't with Adam. This is between the serpent and Eve. Who is the emotional leader? It was Eve. Who did Satan tempt? It was Eve. Adam made a logical decision. He listened to the voice of his wife, but that could not have been a logical statement. It had to be an emotional one. And now you have emotion in the heart of Eve, hatred now towards the servant. Who put it there? God. God will sovereignly not allow you to choose the serpent. 
That is an amazing act of God to pivot from the serpent back to him. And then Eve must get Adam to do it. Ten. God sovereignly put enmity between Satan and the woman. You can look at these commands and statements when you start parsing them and picking them apart. It's amazing what you come up with. And who is this again? What character? Yahweh Elohim, who is patching the holes, allowing redemption. Look at the book of Esther. Uh, and you have King Xerxes through Naaman. Uh, or this is uh, uh, Haman here. I forgot the leper guy. Haman is here in, in Esther. Haman comes in. The king said, what's to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Haman said, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? And of course, the king's talking about Mordecai the Jew, and Haman was going to kill all the Jews. And you see God puts enmity now, and you just read this. He's sovereign. Even though he's not spoken, he puts enmity between Haman and Xerxes. And Haman is destroyed. That's kind of what God does here with the serpent. He sovereignly puts enmity between serpent and the woman. Now, Satan is always wanting to veil the truth, but this principle... What does God do? He is shown in our hearts to give the light. God flips on the switch. He can also flip off that switch. I will not allow you to be wanting that guy. That's an amazing statement by God. Where is it? What part of our body? It's in the heart. There we go. He works in the heart. That's where this is, which is fundamentally depraved. Only he can turn it light. And you notice uh, number 11. The power of God's light overcomes the darkness of Satan's veil. And the New Testament doesn't use the words Yahweh and Elohim, but you said it's God doing this, but specifically what part? You notice it's Christ who actually activates that, the relationship. Genesis three twenty. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. This is after the fall, after the curse, but they haven't died yet, they haven't conceived yet. What does that mean? Several things. There is no out-of-Africa evolutionary model because then you have multiple populations. There's only two people. But ultimately what this means is Adam is now accepting God. We were going to die. We, are, we should die. It's just for us to be killed, but he's not going to kill us now. And I now believe that he will fulfill his promise even though there hasn't been a child born yet. I now believe that. And so they both come back to God. And you know this because when they're kicked out of the garden... They were driven out of the garden. You notice when they had fallen, they ran away and hid from Yahweh Elohim. Now, he has to drive them out. They actually want restoration now because he has altered their heart. So that's how you finish chapter 3 with the fall. There's going to be a resurrection. Ezekiel 37 talks about that, multiple passages. We're going to look at the curse. How about the curse in the garden? Specific, or the curse in the millennial kingdom. A lot of it will be removed, but will all of it? So Isaiah 65 is going all about the millennial kingdom. Millennial kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And at the end, the wolf and the lamb, it's not the lion and the lamb, it's the wolf and the lamb will graze together. There's the lion. The lion will eat straw like an ox. What was the curse on the serpent? Just the physical graphic thing you can see with the snake in the grass? On his belly. Is the curse reversed in the kingdom? Much of it is, but is all of it? No, dust will be the serpent's food. We will still see the graphic memory from the curse. God is sovereign. Satan didn't win. Even in the millennial kingdom, there will still be death, but not much. 
there will still be some aspects of the curse. Much of it is reversed, but is the entire curse reversed? No. And there's one specific reason right there. The serpent, the snake, will still crawl on the ground. Reminiscent from the curse sovereignly by God. Twelve. God continually mocks Satan by demonstrating his sovereignty. We're not self-sufficient living beings. Satan can claim to be God, but he's not. He gets tossed around and ragdolled at every corner. The serpent still crawls on his belly. And it's going to be a process until the very end that God finally crushes his head. And in Romans, that hasn't happened yet. The crushing of the head of the serpent, still future. So the summary of the cosmic war, we looked at key principles. There was eight of them in there. The central characters, of course, is the triune God. And then you have Hillel, Lucifer, becoming Satan. And then we're somewhat of pawns in that. Yet, despite being pawns, we are the apple of the eye to be the bride. However... By rejecting God, we have utter depravity, and we cannot choose God without God flipping the switch sovereignly. And God makes sovereign judgments, and he declares what will happen because he is the sovereign God. 